0: Hello and welcome! My name is Alex Macphail, and this is High Performance Teams. I'm a former aerobatics display pilot from the South African Air Force and I love talking about high performance teams. What makes them work and what we can all learn from them. In the show, we talk to race pilots, professional sportsmen and women, entrepreneurs, comedians, performing artists and more. Please enjoy and remember to subscribe. Maddy Upton is my guest today, an extremely successful coach, specifically a mental coach. He also has a great book out called The Barefoot Coach. He's been involved in coaching for decades now, involved in the South African cricket team as the fitness coach under Bob Woolmer and Hansie Cronje at the time. Took a break from the sport and came back into sport again and joined Gary Kirsten's team, coaching the Indian team, Indian cricket team to... 2011 World Cup champions they were top of the test rankings too very successful time in the subcontinent he came back and joined the South African cricket team again and has been successful in many IPL and Sydney Big Bash teams as well we had lots of things to talk about particularly ego and the mental health and he also had a very scary story about his time helping out street kids in Cape Town in that period where he took a break from sport and uh, having a life-threatening situation but resulting in a very unique bond with one of the dangerous gang street kids of Cape Town. This was a fascinating conversation we really could have talked on for a long time. And he's also got a new podcast out. We talk about his new podcast too, where he's going to interview retired sportsmen on the mental aspects of the game and the things that they couldn't talk about while they were competing. Didn't want to give away trade secrets at the time, but, uh, Certainly an interesting conversation to be had with Paddy and his guests going on. I had a great time in this conversation. Please enjoy Paddy Upton. Morning, Paddy. Thank you so much for your time today. How are you doing? You look a little chilly after your swim.
1: Yeah, Alex, thanks very much for the invitation to come and have this conversation. I really do look forward to it. And yes, I am, uh, at least I can speak properly. 15 minutes ago, I couldn't speak properly because I did a... A one-kilometer open ocean swim in a pair of board shorts uh, just before this, but the water sneaked down to eight and a half degrees Celsius. So Oof. it was a little bit of a wow. fresh, a fresh one this morning.
0: Yeah, that uh, the, the sort of the wind blows that cool, uh, the warm water away, and the cool bit sneaks up. I did a, a qualifying swim. It must have been about five or six years ago now for the Robin Island to Blowberg swim, and I remember that day was also sitting at around nine, and you had to swim it. In a, you know in a speedo and a cap and that would you had to stay in the water for two hours to qualify it didn't matter the distance we did about two k's in it in, in the camps bay and um, I can remember spending at least between 45 and maybe 80 minutes just trying to warm up you know it was jackets and jerseys and heaters in the car hot chocolates in the bath it was it really took a strain on me yeah
1: no it does it's um but it's invigorating I mean it's ap- I absolutely love it as you would know you've experienced it it's
0: yeah so it's just for fun it's you're not training for anything, you're just out uh, there enjoying it.
1: No, it's just my sanity. The ocean's my sanity. So I just oh, yeah, nice. I had, a, had a difficult conversation this morning. And I actually, to be honest, and I just I was feeling a little bit anxious, a um, bit of anxiety in my body just from a, a difficult conversation. So for me, it was like, well, what's the quickest way to really refresh and get myself invigorated for this conversation? And it was very obvious just get in the ocean do a mm. kilometer, get out, and I'm frothing again. This that, <laughs> that difficult conversation this morning is a distant past. I'm a happy camper again.
0: Well, what a beautiful opportunity to do that. I mean, I, I'm a bit landlocked myself, but I can tell you that I'll do the same kind of thing. You know, Anything that's kind of derailed you a little bit, get in the ocean, whether you're catching waves or just bobbing around, it's just lovely. Well, we're going to get into this a little bit more detail, but I want to just set the scene a little bit. I want to, um, I mean, there's lots to talk about. Uh, let me just first... Uh, Tell me what sort of, uh, tell you what kicked off while we're having this conversation today. And um, and then I want to just backtrack a little bit and then we can move forward in a bit of a chronological order. So firstly, uh, you've obviously done great work with Gary Kirsten over the years and your name has been recommended to me from various different sources. And um, I had an opportunity to reach out recently over some of the things you'd been posting on, uh, on LinkedIn, particularly where I've noticed it, about mental health of athletes in these bio bubbles. And that's really the bit that really got my attention and I thought, okay, good, this is something specific I want to know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, before we we dive into that part, let's just rewind the time a little bit. I know as a, as a youth, as a sort of 16-year-old, everyone's got these ideas in life and impressionable. What was the things that was catching your attention? You were obviously quite a skilled athlete yourself by then. Were you already sort of guessing being a professional athlete? Or, you know, what, what was it that you saw in the world and made you think that this is what I'm going after?
1: Um, to be honest, uh, I didn't really think about much I didn't really think about my future I didn't really have any plans I um, I think through school I just I, I could get by doing a bit of studying and do fairly well at school I was a, a very talented cricketer I never trained or did anything to make the most of my talent as a cricketer a rugby player or a soccer player so I definitely was sort of taking it easy as a youngster and even at university you know I've done a, I, I ended up getting a whole lot of university degrees but I I never really thought much about the future. I never really applied myself. And probably my first sort of wake up was sitting in a Kentucky fried chicken hungover in my third year university. And one of the senior cricketers in the team, who was a postgraduate, said, Who I didn't know that well. I just played cricket with him. And he said, Paddy, what are you doing? You're nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, What do you mean I'm nowhere? I'm playing first team rugby. I'm captaining the first cricket team. I'm doing well in a BSc. And he said, Don't no, you know where? You just. You're just drifting through life. You just looks like you're just stuffing around. And, mm-hmm. so, and that's actually what I did is through school. So when I was 16 all the way through to sort of my early 20s, I, I just drifted along and stuffed around because I was clever enough to get decent marks and good enough to be able to you know, play the first league and first team cricket and rugby. So I was a bit of a well, directionless, you think- lu- directionless youth.
0: But uh, but uh, interesting how you frame that as well is because you are good enough to get by and uh, I can recognize a little bit certainly didn't have any of that kind of level of sporting prowess but but good enough to get in the top ten academically and have enough uh, friends to to get by socially and you know some teams playing first team sport in, in different some some different sports and again also noticing that on on pilot training good enough to get by and this is actually almost a dangerous thing when you have enough talent to get by enough that you can sort of take it easy and before you know it you look around you the guys that were struggling a little bit because they were struggling they had to work a bit harder they started accelerating their rate of learning and and, you know a year or two down the track those people that were behind are suddenly way ahead of you because they've now taught themselves a work ethic i don't know what your thoughts on that with this natural ability
1: yeah so i'm very clear on that now i certainly wasn't then but I, I I talk about the curse of the talented and I was one of, I wasn't very talented, but I was talented and I was cursed by my talent in that I never really worked hard, never applied myself, never really had to. And the the scrap heap of talented athletes who never made it, that pile is very, very high. Not even athletes, business people, whatever it might be, um, cursed by their talent where the, the, the smaller kid, the skinny kid um, who – Who really has to work hard to make the most of their talent just to be able to hang in and make the team or survive in rugby or just scrape through and get 50% through some subject that they're not very good at? They learn work ethic, they learn determination, they learn to get up and dust themselves off and go again, they learn about disappointment, they learn about grit and having to fight it out. And those Those are probably the most important skills that really get those people to pop out later in life where um, the talented kids, very often they fall by the wayside because they don't get to learn determination, grit, focus, dedication, commitment. They're very quick to give up. And I'm very lucky, I guess I was one of those guys and I I, I fell over enough times and I got to work with people like Gary Kirstens and that, who you, you you mentioned earlier, who were the opposite. They had average talent, but they worked flipping hard, and I guess I was lucky enough to open my eyes and learn from some of those guys.
0: So was it a bit of a key moment there, this hangover state in the KFC? Or did you did you take a, a, a restock on life on that day?
1: No, I was just pissed off with that oak, and I thought he was an idiot for <laughs> making that stupid statement. But it, it was... <laughs> but it, some, somewhere it obviously settled in, because a while later, when I sort of realized, actually, um, what am I doing here? I'm just drifting up. By the end of my first degree at university at Stellenbosch uh, I was captaining the first cricket team I was captaining Western Province under 23 I you know qualified fairly comfortably with a BSc I was playing very good rugby at the time and uh, then I had to make a decision so do I go and work do I, I play sport for a living do I get another degree and it was then that I realized shit I've never really thought about this very much never really applied myself and I've actually got to make some little decisions here about what next so and then it occurred to me that what that made to mind paul ginsburg said it was actually maybe guinea had a point there he wasn't such an idiot for <laughs> saying that i was nowhere
0: he <laughs> let it stew for a while i'm curious as well uh so i mean not many people end up going down four four different degrees because that certainly is applying yourself it came later as you as you admitted to just now but uh Right away, you said, maybe I should get a job, take sport professionally or study again. I would never have thought to, and I, and I haven't, I have one degree, but I've never thought to follow on with another degree. What was your mindset there, thinking that you might study again?
1: Well, hope, I'm going to give you the honest answer, and hopefully there isn't someone in the undergraduate listening to me here, because it's really, <laughs> so the, the decision then was I needed to go to the army, get a job or carry on studying. And I never really was, for me, university was about playing playing good sport living in a fool's paradise, drinking beer, partying, chasing girls. And the mm. studying was the excuse to be able to do, have a good excuse to be able to do that stuff. Okay. And I didn't want to go to the army because I didn't want some 18-year-old, whatever they were called in, commandant or PTI, uh, yeah. <laughs> telling me what to do. So that's one of been one of my gifts in life is I don't like to toe the line and fall in with the sheep and do what I'm necessarily told. I like to think more independently. So Army wasn't an option. I didn't feel I was ready to go to work. And I thought, well, I got offered a nice bursary to go to University of Port Elizabeth. Um, they had a great cricket team at the time. They had a very good first rugby team. I was going to do an honours and, th- and they were going to pay for me. So actually, the reason I carried on studying was I didn't want to go to the army. I wasn't ready to work. So I, I figured let's get a, a free year in Fool's Paradise, which I called university, uh, and play some good sport and you know do a bit of work. And it was only then during my my honours degree that I started sort of thinking about maybe this stuff that I'm studying is actually quite interesting. Because I, I don't think undergraduates for too many people is too interesting the lifestyle is, but I'm not sure that the studies are. Well, certainly it wasn't sure, for me. Okay.
0: Well, that makes sense. Your answer really uh, sums it up nicely. Uh, okay, so then you go off to to study your next your honors degree in Port Elizabeth and have another great time. And uh, um, by the way, I'm I'm really enjoying the book. Uh, Barefoot Coach is wonderful. I'm about three quarters of the way through, and uh, you know some of the the, the points that uh, that come out there is. You talk about so this transition just shortly thereafter, where you you join there as a fitness coach of the the cricket team in the early nineties, the South African cricket team. It is, and uh, you realize this is a beautiful life: free Oakleys and Nikes and clothes and travel and you know, best seats in the house and being free restaurants and all that, all the trappings that go with it, which is beautiful and it, and it's not an easy thing to turn your back on. So maybe you can just summarize your your sort of experience in the team for that I don't want to spend too long on this point but but where you realized all these good things and having a great time wasn't actually fulfilling you
1: yeah so that was probably the the one of the most significant turning points for me in my life was you know I, I was at the time busy studying a master's degree um I, I shelved those studies for a bit got this job as the first fitness trainer in world cricket um training the proteas under Bob Wooldman Hansie Cronje spent 4 years on the road I must have been, I don't know, in my mid-twenties at the time, well-paid, um, three, four months, holiday a year, as you said, all the free, the living the life that of a professional mm-hmm. athlete, although I was in the wings, I wasn't actually on the field. And it was somewhere towards the end of that tenure that literally when I stepped back and I looked at my life, everything that someone in their mid-twenties could possibly want, I had. But there was annoying emptiness for me. And I, I couldn't ignore that that empty feeling like this is actually, it, it can't get any better, but it doesn't feel that great. And I got to a point where that emptiness or that something missing was just gnawing at me so much. And when I looked around at a lot of the other cricketers, I, I really got a sense that I felt it in some of those players as well. And it might have just been a projection, but hindsight, I don't think it was. And I just knew I needed to leave. And I didn't know where there wasn't somewhere else to go. I was knew I was resigning from the dream job. I might never get back into this space. But I was just so deeply moved at, it at like an intuitive level that get out of here. And people said to me, like, okay, there must be obviously a problem or you must have an awesome opportunity if you're resigning from this. And the, the genuine answer was there isn't a problem. It's as good as it can be on the outside. I didn't share then. I was too much in the male ego to be able to say I'm actually not fulfilled here and I feel empty. Um, and I said there's no there's no other plan. And I put a backpack on my back and I literally spent six months traveling around mostly Southeast Asia on a on a daily uh um budget of eight US dollars a day. That was including travel food accommodation. So I really roughed it so I could draw that trip out as long as possible. And it was only during that time that I was able to really look back. Now that I was outside of this what I called the mm-hmm. playground of the ego that I was so good at playing in in this international sporting arena. Because in Vietnam and Lambo- Cambodia and Laos no one knew cricket, no one was interested in the fact that I had a couple of degrees and no one even asked that. It was the kind of person that I was being that if I was a good oak people gravitated towards me, if I wasn't, then I ended up being lonely. And that's mm. when I realized that I'd been playing in the playground of the ego and um, I really needed to look at, so so what is it that life is actually about and who is Paddy Upton and, and, you know, what I want to do. And I certainly didn't find the answers, but what I did was I found the question that set me off on the journey of, um, Stepping off out of the playground of the ego and hiding behind the the smiley face mask and the facade of life is great. Um, and it's yeah. It's, okay, it's well, I want to get I come back
0: to yeah. I want I want to come back to ego again. But uh, I just want to put it to you that so you're from Heart Bay originally, and uh, you know, going to the travel the east and the shoestring budgets where your shoes came off. I would put it to you again, rather than for the first time. If you're from uh, that part of the world, you know what it's like to have your feet in the sand. So you you literally the uniform off and that was a bold move you know you, you talk about it was an ego fueled job perhaps at the time but to to walk away from something that's good knowing that it may never come again because these kind of roles where you are in national teams if you turn your back in it there is almost no possibility that it comes back so luckily in your instance you did get a chance to come back again but you don't know that at the time
1: yeah so
0: it's a bold move
1: it it, it is and it was a bold move and you know, and I've made a few bold moves like that in my career. And it's amazing how often that people come and say, Wow, you know, you're so lucky uh, to to get this next break. And or and for me, it's not luck, it's just courage. It's just the courage to to listen to your intuition number one. Maybe not so that the courage, but it's 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 the insight to listen to your intuition and then the courage to actually act on it, to say, I resign or i 'm getting out or i 'm changing jobs I mean I think i 've changed careers five times, um, and it yeah. takes a whole lot of courage to do that but it's it 's easy enough for anybody to do and it 's much safer and I see so many people who would rather choose the easy road or just to stay in the momentum of mediocrity or on the couch of com- the, the comfortable couch of life um, yeah. and I guess it 's part courage and also You know, I'm I'm not going to claim all that. I I do like new experiences and I am more open to change probably than the average person. So it's easier for me to say, just have the courage and make the change. Um, Sure. But I haven't met too many people who've made a big change and look back and regretted it, provided there's some form of intuition that informs it and some smarts that's gone into the thinking behind it.
0: But I want to move from, I mean, that's obviously a great experience in that time in your life where you've… you know you've gone and done something completely different from the trappings of the high life to you know living as a a very poor traveler you know it's particularly in that part of the world you get to see a lot of poverty as well but also a lot of humanity and then uh, what was what was your next thought that, that that took you into the business world did you did you think that you wanted to pause sport for a while or did you purposely distance yourself from sport and go into business coaching
1: um well when i got back from that trip i i actually didn't know what to do and I found myself in a place, interestingly, that I, I've subsequently coached a lot of retired athletes around is, okay, so I have some, some experience, I have something of a CV and credibility, now what? And there's almost two distinct paths there. It's either somebody comes to you with a really good idea and you jump onto someone else's boat that they built and they're sailing, or you can start with a blank canvas and say, what do I want to do and go and build your own boat that takes a hell of a lot longer, it's a hell of a lot more risk and you don't actually know if it's going to float once you put it on the water. So it's much easier and more tempting to hop onto someone else's boat. But in the medium to long term, it probably works out less often when you hop onto someone else's boat than when you take the time in the medium to long term to build your own. So, mm-hmm. so what I did was I, hop, I hopped onto someone else's boat. A mate came along and said, I've got this business, it's a new business, um, it's a startup in the sports exhibition game and you've got the contacts and it looked really nice and it was a fairly safe option because the risk was uh, with my mate. Um, so I fell into it. I took the opportunity. Um, and in okay. hindsight, it, it led me to, you know, probably to two very important lessons that sh- year and a half journey in that business. Uh, one is... You know, when you're in business with mates, you actually get to find out, is this guy your mate? And he turns out <laughs> to, to be one of the guys who I probably respect least in the world at the moment because he really showed his true colors when it came to, to money and greed and looking after himself and hanging the rest of his mates he pulled onto his ship out to dry. He reminds me of that yeah. cap, that captain of – what is the captain of that – Greek vessel that crashed off.
0: Uh, the Oceanus.
1: Yeah, the Oceanus, and the captain jumped off first. Well, yeah. He, yeah. my mate was that guy. He jumped off and he left his mates to sink. So, but at the same time, as that business was slowly sinking, it was based in town. I started hanging around in town. I met the street kids and people who were working with street kids.
0: Oh, okay. So was that the street kids before you went to the UK? Ah. Oh. Because I wanted to talk about this. Okay, good. so
1: that so that was at the same time, and I just I got to meet them. I started playing soccer. I started spending more and more time on the streets during the daytime, and I got to understand the streets at the daytime by these you know the real hardened street children and youth. And then when we'd go partying there at night, I actually on the weekends my mates would go into the clubs, and I found it more interesting to go around the corner and hang out with these guys. And they started showing me the real underbelly of cape town and that mm. just naturally progressed into me spending two years literally working full time on the streets of cape town with street kids and it you know a lot of people said like you've gone from the high life of this cricketing world now to the the, the <laughs> proper lowest of low life
0: <laughs> yeah
1: and like a lot of people said like what what changed like did you have a religious experience or this epiphany and it was actually no uh it definitely wasn't a religious experience Uh, i don't like kids a a whole lot to be honest but i was just fascinated by this underworld that happened right under our noses that few Mm. people were hardly even aware of that happened how these kids move around in this dual reality that happened in the middle of cape town and it fascinated me and it actually turned out for me it was almost the similar work to what I was doing with the national cricket team. And that how yeah, was dealing with the best of the best, but these guys are the best of the game of survival. Because if you're not mm. great at survival, you get stabbed or raped or killed or chased out of town. And so I was dealing with the best of the best who, and they, yeah, it's just everything about them. Uh, the cops were after them. They, you know, they were either in jail or in trouble or sick or in fights Um, And to help them survive and make a way and try and create a functional and a better lives for themselves, which to a fair degree, I was doing that with the cricketers. I had a whole lot of experience and contacts and was was just giving them tools and skills and techniques to help them be better at what they they were doing. So um, I sort of jumped on there in in that, but that was a, a really big turning point for me as well is just happened to fall into that kind of work.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. And again, we'll get to ego shortly specifically, but uh, you mentioned in the book as well that you've, uh, you know, in the beginning, it was a case of, well, I'll I'll do this to kind of look good. It's not really what I'm passionate about, but uh, it might help my corporate image or out there image anyway. But certainly I suppose it's like most things, as you just start sort of pulling back the curtain a bit and seeing more, you want to know more and and you probably eventually got more and more involved and you get that very touching story about, uh, what was the guy's name? Terrible or horrible. And uh, wow, that must have been uh, one of those defining moments in your life too. I don't know if you want to share that uh, on this conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a. I'll I'll try and shorten the story, but it was probably one of the most powerful moments of my life. Was I was in we we had created a temporary shelter for a couple of kids in winter in in a sort of woodstock in a sort of not a good area of not a good area, and I was Mm. there on a Friday night to attend one of the street kids' party, and I was there last at the end of the evening, and one of the kids and his his name was Hrivelik which translates to horrendous uh, and there was a good reason because he had sort of lost count of how many people he had stabbed and raped and poured petrol on and set fire to and as I was leaving I saw him lunging into a car trying to stab his girlfriend as she was leaving with her father and his girlfriend was holding their sort of nine-month-old baby on her chest trying to use the baby as a shield as he was stabbing her sort of the thighs and the chest around this and it was horrendous to witness and I I quickly nipped around the corner to phone the police and as the phone was ringing he walked around the corner with this dripping knife literally like you see in the movies and I was in a dark corner and he said you're calling the police aren't you and I just went white and I went cold and he said something to the fact that you know who I am yeah, Ken for me, he said in Afrikaans, which is, you know who you're messing with here. You you do know. I don't need to tell you. And he didn't need to tell me. And he started telling me what he was going to do to me. Um, and I just remember in that moment, I have no idea what happened, but I saw into his, I saw into him, I saw this terribly hurt little boy. And I mean, I get goosebumps. I could burst out crying now mm. and I just leaned forward and I just went to hug him and I just hugged this little boy and I held him and he hugged me and we just stood there hugging and he just literally broke down and he said to me, "Paddy, I want to tell you my story. And he started telling me and it was too much for me. It was too much for him at the time. He he had smoked some, some Mandrax, which I don't know what you, what Mandrax would be called today or something. And, So he was under the influence of drugs. And I arranged to take him to see a a psychologist friend of mine who was much more equipped to deal with this. And he he spent an hour telling about how, as a six-year-old kid, his stepfather raped and sodomized him. And being so embarrassed, he would go to bed at night, he would clean the sheets, clean the blood off the sheets in the morning, and he would go to school in pain. And he eventually went to his mom and he said, Mom, this is what's happening. And his mom beat him for telling stories like that about the drunk stepfather. In fact, it wasn't even his stepfather, it was the mother's boyfriend. So he left home at the age of six. And since then, he was 26 at the time. He'd spent 20 years literally living on the streets and taking that anger and upset and hurt out on other people and thus him stabbing. And he was the person, if anyone had a problem with someone else, they would go to him because he would happily steal or, I mean, stab or rape or what they did then is that when someone's sleeping, when they drunk, they'd pour petrol on them and set them in a, a light. And um, at the end of that conversation, he said, you're the first people I've ever told us to. And what I'm telling you now is I'm going home and I'm going to go and kill my mother and her boyfriend.
0: Yeah. It's like, it doesn't get, it's not like it gets better. It's, it just continues.
1: So, and I remember sitting with my friend, the psychologist, and I wasn't moved to, to tell the police about what was going to happen. And I'm not under, I'm not under any, professional obligation but there's a moral obligation i had to inform the police of a murder that was potentially about to happen and she does have a professional obligation to inform and we didn't do it i Mm. cannot tell you why and i would not 100% not be revealing this now had he gone home and done that but i saw him two weeks later, two months later in town and he came running up to me and he gave me this hug and his eyes were clear. I'd never seen his, his eyes white. They were always yellow. The whites of his eyes were always yellow and red from all the drugs he did. And he showed me his hands and he, his hands were clean because the, the people who smoke mandraks, they would always have burn marks in their hands. And he said, I haven't touched alcohol. And he said, I want to tell you, I went home to kill my parents. But when I walked in there, I had just absolute forgiveness for them and I forgave them and I go home now regularly and I see them. And he had stopped drugs sure. and he said, and I've stopped, a peep. I don't let people call me chrivelok or what's translated to horrendous. I, I asked them to call me by my, my birth name now. So, wow. and, and I would not have told the story, the second half of the story, had that outcome not, not transpired. So,
0: Wow, Patty, I mean, it's, it's quite an experience. I mean, that's not a, a, by any stretch of the imagination, people don't get those kind of experiences. Firstly, that uh, you were confronted in that corner, and secondly, that it resulted in what it did yeah I, I mean wow
1: yeah I, I, to this day I, I I do not have an explanation for what happened in those moments it's
0: and is this the sort of late nineties early 2000s
1: yeah yeah early two thousands
0: and when last did you hear from this uh this person
1: um or did you ever see him around yeah, or? I would see him from time to time, not for quite a while now um, you know, I moved off the streets and stopped doing that work and it's um I wouldn't have seen him for 10 years now but i would see him every okay. couple of months for 10 years after that and
0: wow yeah okay well it's quite a quite a life-changing i mean there's definitely something in your makeup uh, being approachable being uh, the person that can you know just be there for a person you mentioned another story about the new zealand batsman as well who who had a tough time and even though they were the opposition you were there for them and just had a little conversation in the hotel lobby so, I mean, those kind of uh, attributes of yourself as a coach, whether it's business or sport, that was obviously becoming a defining feature. Had you noticed it and recognized it in yourself by then? Because sometimes we don't see it in ourselves.
1: Um, I, I probably hadn't defined it, but I, I always loved captaining teams that I played in. And what I loved most was creating an environment where each individual could really be themselves and thrive. So, in fact, I even, I remember captaining the Western Province Under 23 cricket team for, from about the age of 20 through to 23. And in one of the seasons, the coach Hilton Ackerman came to me and said, Paddy, you need to, to be scoring more runs so we can keep, you can keep your place in the team because you're not actually holding your place in your team with the contributions you're making. But this team is not being beaten by anybody. And it's, it's your leadership that is creating something special but we're struggling to pick you can you score runs (laughs) and it's like I love leading people and it's yeah so I was still that lost corp then not putting in the effort to really (laughs) convert my talent into runs unfortunately and my my career ended shortly because I never did put in that work to convert my talent into results as a young man as a young athlete that way.
0: Your talent has definitely been uh, been ploughed deeply into other areas, or from the coaching side.
1: Yeah, thank thank goodness, because for me, scoring runs and taking wickets and winning trophies is, for me personally, is it's not a it's not a, a big a good purpose for me to be alive. And I always say, if, you know, even as a coach, if I die with a whole lot of trophies in the cabinet, for me, that's not a life well lived. It's touching other people's lives and really making a difference. Mm. Like then, I go to sleep well at night.
0: Okay, I don't want to um, to gloss over too much because obviously being part of the team with Gary Kirsten and coaching India to their you know various successes, but it culminating in the World Cup win 2011, uh, I just want to mention one or two points there, and I want to move on to our, our mental conversation and ego etc. But uh, I love that that uh, time where you said you'd been there for a couple of months and you'd you know you you want to share your worth in the team and you're always giving your input and uh, MS Dhoni comes to you and says, don't feel you always have to have to say something. Tell me, tell me about that experience.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, when Gaza and I joined the team, I mean, Gary had never coached a team in his life. I was in a role that didn't exist. We were effectively two novices, and but we had some very clear philosophies on what we believed needed to happen and how coaching needed to unfold. And we had the ingredients in the team to harness the intelligence that sat within the team really was our approach, as opposed to being the all-knowing experts coming in and imposing our knowledge on others, which you know, is the antithesis of both Gary and my coaching philosophy. Um, but nonetheless, I did find myself in, in team meetings. Gary would finish and he would say, anyone else want to chat? And I felt I had a lot of value to add. So I would share something that I was moved to share and often just very, very brief, but I wanted to contribute to this team. And, mm. Three months later, as you said, into the... the Dhoni, who very would said very little in, at the time, we were just walking away from the meeting over to the nets and he just walked up to me and he very quietly in an understated way said, Paddy, don't feel like you always need to say something. <laughs> and that was flipping <laughs> like Subtle. an arrow straight through my ego. It's like, no, you mean I'm being that oak who's speaking for the sake of speaking so I can tick the box to be seen to be that oak who's actually doing his job, which i just it's it's one of my pet hates when you have coaches particularly sports coaches who do stuff because it ticks the box because it makes them appear to be doing their job which is there's nothing worse that as i said earlier i'm not a fall in line with the rest of the sheep guy i hate doing tick the box stuff for the sake of doing things and they don't just let me know in my ear that i think you're being that guy now paddy um and yeah, it, it just got me to really rethink and go, okay, so if I do have a contribution to share, don't think, is it something I want to share? Pay attention to the environment and the environment will let you know and will move you to share something if you're paying attention. And that really was my turnaround is it's about the environment, not of... And I, in fact, the language I use, interesting that, that you're a pilot, you know, I always say my message is the airplane. Uh, my audience is the landing strip. And what's most important is understanding the landing strip and how to put, when to put my message down and how to put my message down. Because it's about landing my message and I have to be yes. pay attention to the strip, not my plane, because that's always flying. Yeah. I've always got ideas.
0: Yeah. And also land at the right strip. (laughs) No good landing at that strip over there. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I'll continue the the aviation metaphor a little longer than Patty, because, uh, you know, the words you use there, it comes back to some of the talks I give as well with the, the environment and, um, you know, if, you, if you're if you operating international flights up and down through Africa, two, three in the morning, you're crossing the ITCZ and you've got uh, thunderstorms. But the first thing that you notice, if you kind of, at that time of the day, you know, circadian rhythms, body is not doing so well. It's been a long night and you kind of, you're on the low energy state of things. The first thing you'll start to notice is that uh, you'll get this St. Elmo's fire. I don't know if you've ever seen St. Elmo's fire. It's a bit like um, the Van der Graaf generator in Standard 8 Science when you put your hand on top, that glass dome and all the little bits of lightning going towards your hand. So you see that on the windscreen itself, on the glass of the airliner. And sometimes if it's uh, impressive enough and the right speed and angle, et cetera, sometimes off the nose, you get this beam of light, a bit like uh, the emperor strikes back kind of thing, this sort of 10 meter beam, which just pokes out into the distance. It's quite impressive. I've managed to get photos of the the windscreen, but not of this beam sticking out. But anyway, the point of this is this is uh, my, my, in my talk, I share, this is the environment is speaking to you. So if you're sitting there and you're half asleep dribbling on your shoulder and it's two in the morning and you start seeing this um, lightning, this an almost fire on the windscreen. That's the universe saying, hey, wake up. And that's the time where you sit up and you wipe your eyes a little bit and you start paying attention to the weather radar because there's moisture in the air. It's telling you that there's a lot of static electricity, there's thunderstorms, there's turbulence, and you need to start making plans around the weather. So another another metaphor to continue, the environment speaking. <laughs> Okay, I want to just uh dance around a little bit now. So, uh although it was a wonderful achievement, I want to just move forward a little bit uh, from the the World Cup win with India, etc. And um let's jump into the mental health aspect. The ego, you mentioned a lot and uh and it's sort of littered throughout your book. And also I can see just the way you you talk about it. You you, you talk specifically about that incident with the, the the leather-bound dossier with the team and that uh, really landed badly on on Gary's table uh, unfortunately and anyway, the Ego is quite a clear part of your book all the way through, and it also must marry together nicely with this conversation of mental health. So let's let's just keep these two themes going for a little bit now. And um, you've mentioned that these bio bubbles are, are on the go, and some of the sportsmen at, at the moment are two, three, four months living in a hotel. But you had experience of this before, not quite as long, but like the World Cup in India and some of the tours to the dangerous areas where the players would be on a, a tour for a number of weeks, but actually be restricted to either the hotel or the field. So maybe just share some of your experience from then and why it's different now, and, and you know. So what's what's the play of the the, lay of the land at the moment?
1: Yeah, so sure. I mean, it's it's such a broad and important and deep topic. This sort of ego bio bubbles conversation. Um, but some of the stuff that, if I were to just pick some of the key things, is um, like ego is, I think ego is so important to understand for anybody, and it's, it's, it's a generic term out there. For me, ego, when I talk about ego, it's that, it's that part of us that drives us to do four things, drives our behavior. It drives us to look good in the eyes of others, and if we can't look good, it drives us to not look bad. Uh, So ego really wants to do well and ego really doesn't want to drop a catch or get dropped or be criticized. Ego wants to be right, which normally plays out in an argument with a partner or someone close to you. And if it can't be right, it'll fight to not be wrong. So whenever we're driven to look good or not look bad, be right and not be wrong, it's we're in our ego. And the common, that common thing about between those four things is it's all about me. It doesn't Mm -hmm. consider other people. So, when we're all about me, we are, as as a leader at least, we are 100%, we are least effective when we're an ego, which means we're serving our agenda our and how we look. As an athlete, that's a delicate balance. I think ego is a real asset in the training ground and in the gym, the thing that gets you to get out of bed when you don't want to get out of bed, to go to the gym, to get stronger, to work longer in the nets, to get better, to... Be smarter, to be able to dominate your opponent, to get selected, to score runs, to be whatever it might be. All of those beautiful this, performance. Yeah.
0: This sounds all around the preparation rather than the actual execution, though.
1: Yeah. When okay. an athlete walks across the ropes, ego okay. works against them. Across the ropes, or walks into the team environment, because ego is all about me and my agenda. When we walk into the team environment, we need to have at least a healthy balance between me and my agenda, which is very important in most in professional sports, but it needs to be have an equal-ish balance with what does the team need of me? What are other people in need of me? How can I serve the team? So a practical example of that playing out in cricket. I say to cricketers, come along to, to Nets or to training, be completely and 100% self-focused and selfish. Get whatever you need to take your game to the next level and to prepare as best you possibly can for the upcoming game. Once you're done, this is a three, four hour practice. You can't do that for three, four hours or very seldom, can you? When you're done, go and have a change, have a refresh, have a shower, grab a Sami, come back here and then be about other people. Look around and see who can I help? Who can I throw to? Can I go talk to a youngster? Where can I add value to someone else? Because I've now satisfied me, now go and make your team contribution.
0: Mm. so it's no this, th- is, this dovetails nicely into uh where i read in your book about the um optional practices is, is this where this kind of stuff began no
1: well optional practices is slightly different uh, and so I wait, that's almost an, another conversation optional okay. practices right. very briefly is about players taking responsibility for making decisions around their preparation okay the, right. most practice sessions in most professional sports and almost all amateur sports the coach decides what each athlete's going to do at training, which I believe is fundamentally flawed. That just creates athletes who don't think for themselves. The best yeah, in the okay. world, they know what they want to work on. They arrive at training and they know what they want to work on. So, optional practices was about actually transferring responsibility to players to say, you think about is coming to practice going to serve your game better compared to staying at the hotel in the air conditioning and having a massage? Which is going to get you in a better place for Saturday's game? And if you do come to practice, why are you here? What do you want to work on, and how do you want to work on that, and why do you particularly choose that? So we start getting players to engage their own thinking around their preparation, but as i said that's okay, so that, back, that's a, that's a tangent
0: right. okay, so back on, on the ego okay so
1: ego um egos. It's not about, and I hear people say, that person's got no ego, or you must transcend ego. That's also bullshit. That's just a a concept out there. We've all got ego, we've got it now, and we're going to die with it, except maybe the odd, completely enlightened yogi, which is not me and anyone I know. Um, (laughs) Sure
0: so it's just i'm just hoping right now that you're that you're enjoying this conversation at the end of it patty thinks alex is a good oak and i'm glad i'm on his show <laughs> exactly that's, <laughs> that's what, my ego
1: that's what we do as speakers and podcast hosts we want people to think that we land good and if we yeah. act if, <laughs> if we act from that we come across as inauthentic and people get like this dude is just blowing his own trumpet he's trying to sound intelligent but if people are listening to this and they go Can I say, fuck, but fuck, these oaks are really talking to me. They're really sharing and they really Mm. got the listener in mind. Well, then we're going to be effective. Um, Mm. So it's just so important to understand how does your ego, how does my ego play out in my life? Where does it serve me? Where does it work against me? And as soon as we are aware of our ego, ego and awareness cannot live in the same space. You're either an ego, which means you're unconscious, you're in lack of awareness, it's about you, or when you're awareness, then you're a conscious human being and ego has. it's very difficult for ego to play out in that space, although it will try and come back.
0: Okay, so if, if you go from, uh, you, you mentioned the example uh, of the training, so come in and do exactly what you need to do, fulfill your ego part of things, go shower change, come back and help someone else. If you put it in the game scenario, how, how would you describe it there?
1: So in the game, um, so what ego does, it's, its primary activity is in the thinking brain. Ego is constantly okay. going back into the past to create its identity so it's attached to things that happened in the past, whether it was good to give us good confidence or whether bad things happened, ego still, even someone who's in victim mode or feel sorry for myself mode, they're attached to a thing in the past. That's ego. The other thing ego does, it spends all its time in the future chasing success because it wants to look good, number one, and terrified of failure. So fear of failure, because then if we mm-hmm. fail, ego looks bad. So ego is all about, as I said, looking good, not looking bad, which is... Mm-hmm. is all about succeeding in the future, look good, not failing in the future, look bad. So pressure and fear are two of the biggest mental obstacles to success in all of sport and, I hazard a guess, all of life. And those two things are directly attached to ego because pressure comes from the amount of importance we place on a result, it's a concept mm-hmm. we create for self, and it's about an attachment to a future result. Ego needs to do well. So it attaches, places a real importance on succeeding. And ego really doesn't want to do badly, so it's terrified of failure. So ego is actually a key driver of pressure and of fear. But to come back to it, and I've, I've given some quite complex and broad and depth stuff in a very short space of time there so i want to come back to why does ego work against us in game time again it's either stuck in the past or even more so the majority of the time it's constantly hankering after doing well in the future and not doing badly in the future in order to perform you need to be fully present focused on the task at hand And ego cannot be fully focused on the task at hand. Ego is constantly looking at the result of the task at hand. So if you're landing an airplane and there's people watching, you you are thinking about, am I going to land as well? What are people going to say? How am I going to score? What are the uh, passengers going to think? It's all about the result of your landing. And it takes Mm. you out of the present moment of focusing on what is the important task to be focusing on in this moment. So ego can't be process-focused. It's outcome-focused. And that's why it's our okay. biggest enemies. When we're up on the plate, you, you're flying a plane or you're playing your cricket, rugby or soccer game or giving a presentation or as I'm sitting here talking to you now and my ego is jumping ahead going, yeah, I hope I <laughs> nail all these questions and this podcast flies. And then, then I'm not listening to you and I'm not thinking about what I'm talking about now.
0: Okay, well, I go back to a post you, you put out a few weeks ago where it said uh, exactly this, this idea that just because you're a pro sportsman, it doesn't mean that you don't get the chatter in your head or the self-doubt or the nerves, all those things. Pro sportsmen are able to channel the energy to put the focus in on the time at hand. So if I summarize that, and I don't want to oversimplify too many things, but to summarize essentially what you've said in a few minutes ago in that post is you're able to manage your ego, put it at bay while you focus on what's happening right now at this next ball, this next swing.
1: Yeah, correct. And the so all athletes, they have exactly the same doubts, insecurities, negative thoughts, vulnerabilities that you and I and every other human being has. They just have an ability to turn the volume down on those and move that conversation in a way into the backseat seat and then be very clear on what do I need to be focusing on, what is important. And there's a very nice acronym in sport that we use is WIN. W-I-N. What's, what's important, important now. now. So, so athletes are able to just make what's important now front and center, the volume turned up on that. It doesn't mean that they don't have these doubts, vulnerabilities, negativities, fears, pressures. And it's just that they can turn the volume down and they accept those happen they don't try and fight them. They don't judge them as bad. It's like, okay, there's that doubting thought of mine. I'm just going to move into the back and make sure I'm focused on the right thing. And it's amazing how mm. many athletes and coaches and parents I get coming to me in my capacity of mental coach and saying, can you help me or my player or my kid? They, they've got these fear and nerves and anxiety and doubt. Can you help them get over that and, and get past it and get rid of it? So mm. It's where did you read that we get rid of these things or we get over <laughs> them? That doesn't happen, you know, in life. You, happen, actually, yeah. you actually just, they will always be there. You could just either manage them fairly well most of the time or they manage you and they create mm-hmm. the stuff ups. But they, they're always there. It's just how we manage but, and relate to them.
0: So it would seem to me that um, not only is it that they're able to turn the volume up and focus on, you know, what's important now for this next ball, this next swing, but they have to do it repeatedly and have to rechannel, And I think that's also a, basically a muscle that you have to, you know, you have to exercise and get fit. And, you know, I think uh, to some degree we could all take a moment in our lives and say, let's focus on this thing now. And that's hard enough as it is, but we could probably do it. But to do it repeatedly, like Gary Kirsten's famous batting inning was at 14 hours where, uh, you know, uh, in the eve of being dropped, but he came back and scored 200 odd runs. So, being able to focus ball after ball after ball, I think that's the real skill is to say, okay, we did it a moment ago, but we have to do it again now. We, you know, I put the wolves down there. Just wait there. I'll, I'll deal with you later. I'm going to deal with this ball now.
1: Um, you know, and it's it's an interesting thing that is, you know, in some sports, you have to do that same thing over and over and over again, you know, and particularly batting in test cricket. You know, you've got to, Gary batted for 14 hours. or If you're going to score 100, you've got to be batting for, you know, upwards of 150 deliveries and you've got to go through that exact same reset over and over and you know I say to you, certainly batsmen and cricket you, you have to accept that you picked a profession that y- you're going to excel if you accept that it's boring and you find a very repetitive boring thing to do over and <laughs> over and if you can keep doing that very repetitive thing and you can accept how boring it is you're going to end up delivering a whole lot of results. But if you want to get fancy and you get bored and you want to start <laughs> playing some big shots, and that was me as a cricketer. Like after blocking three or four balls, it's like, dude, I want to show you the kind of shots I can play because <laughs> I can play these shots and I want to show you. So I, mm. I, my mind couldn't do that boring thing over and over and over again. And I guess it's the same in tennis. It's the same in golf. You know, you've got to do the same boring thing. For some people, it's you know, seventy-eight shots. For some people, it's a hundred shots per round.
0: Mm, yeah. Okay, now let, let's bring it back into the sort of the bio bubbles and, and professional athletes now living in these hotel rooms for weeks and weeks and months at a, at a time. What, what is your uh, – what, what's the latest uh, – you, you've been quite vocal recently saying that people aren't paying much attention to it. What are your latest thoughts on this? Or let me just give a summary. What's actually happening out there? Make it real. So, so I think
1: um, when, when I say, you know, it's not so much – that there's nothing happening people are talking a lot but they're not doing a lot so athletes are having to go into this and into a hotel room and for a lot of countries they have to first quarantine for eight days so they may not leave their hotel room for eight days they may not see another human being Um, and a hotel room at the best of times is a very lonely and a small place Um, and you can only get food from inside the hotel and then for the duration of the tournament and then back-to-back tournaments, the only time they can leave the hotel room is when they go to a team room and they can interact with their own teammates, whether they go to training or to a game. They can't go to a restaurant. They can't have people come and visit them. So it becomes a very isolated existence. And, yes, I hear people out there saying, oh, but they're earning great money and they're on TV and they're staying in five-star hotels. It's a five-star jail if you spend <laughs> nine months of a year in that jail that's not yours, that's somebody else's, that there's very little familiar in it, and your bedroom, lounge, dining, room, kitchen is all the same room. Um, and I guess one of the, there's, there's two things that I really want to highlight is, number one, pre-COVID times. It, one of the biggest things about a hotel room is it's a lonely place, and I know I've spent 14 years, if I add that, probably 16 years, eight to nine months a year living in them. It's a lonely place. And what happens, particularly for these athletes in the lead up to games, as their training tapers off, which we normally do, you don't have long intensive training sessions a day or two before the game, players end up chilling in their room and what happens is they play the game over and over in their head. It's almost impossible not to do because there's only a certain amount of PlayStation and reading and social media you can scroll. So even in good times, the majority of players arrive at game time physically ready or prepared, but they're not mentally ready because they're mentally exhausted because they've played the game over and over and over in their head. And that really does create mental exhaustion and fatigue, which is something that mm. we haven't measured and is very it's not much spoken about. But I can tell you it's a very real thing pre-COVID times. Now you put a player in a hotel room and they have so much more time to not get away from the game. And what players would do and would encourage it pre-COVID is get out of your room, get out of the hotel. And the language we use is get away from the game. Do whatever you need to do. If you need to go shopping, if you need to go to a restaurant, if you need to go watch movies, if you need to play golf, if you need to go to the beach, get away from the game. Get with people where you're not thinking the game over. So you're not only resting your body, but also you're resting your mind. Um, But now players can't get away from the game. So that's one thing that's really been exacerbated. The other thing that I really wanted to bring up that, and I've been fairly vocal about is we're 18 months into Bible experiences now. I'm not seeing anywhere research that's come out that's saying here are the common problems that athletes are experiencing because we've asked a whole lot of people, we've got some academically oriented people to collate all of these stories into here are your red flags, your orange flag. And here are some early warning signs so you can pick them before you become exhausted and have to leave uh, a tour. And here's something, some things you can do about them and here's a channel to be able to deal with them. I mean, we're 18 months into this and people have produced vaccines and yeah. booster shots, but they haven't produced a simple document, sport, to say, here are the most common things that you athletes can experience in bio-bubbles. I know the Springbok rugby team was one of the last professional teams in the world to go into a bio bubble experience. They went into a bio bubble for the first time in June or July this year. Literally 15 months after all other teams had been through it. It just turned out that way. My sources from the inside suggest that they did very little to prepare players to say these are the things you can expect. And as I said, it's Mm. still not happening. And I've... Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, on a very small scale, I, um, you know, last year during the, the height of uh, masks and all those kind of repatriation flights, so South African Airways had slowed down, but there was still some flying happening and I did a couple of flights. And obviously, the, well, in the beginning, things were changing a lot. So when I went to work, firstly, it was great to go to work because we weren't actually being paid. So it was great to know, "All well, I'm going to go to work for five days now. I'm going to get paid for five days. So that's great. They said, as we signed on and flew off to China to go catch some masks, they said, well, when you get back, you're going to need to spend 48 hours in this hotel in, uh, in at Joburg Airport. So I said, okay, no problem. And by the time we landed back, we were kind of ushered in this through the police, taking us through the airport and beautiful hotel, intercontinental. And as you say, a five-star um, jail. This was a four-star, but it was one of the nicest hotels I'd been in. But I had a, a wall-to-ceiling four meters long window, uh, glass screen, not a window because nothing could open. Very small room, probably in the order of one and a half garages kind of size and uh, beautiful luxury linen and TV and all those nice things. But I couldn't go anywhere and uh, we weren't allowed to see anyone. You know, we weren't even allowed to eat with the, the, a plate and a knife and fork because they were worried about us contaminating. It was very early days. So we had plastic and polystyrene and everything. But this experience of being in this hotel Beautiful as it was and you can't do much was, uh, was quite frustrating, but I can tell you that I was in a, quite a strong running routine at that point. We'd been running around our house, you know, with a lockdown, you know, we had our, our time to run around the house as a family and I carried on running up and down and running on the spot and getting my two kilometers in in the hotel room. Well, after two days, we didn't go home. They said, no, no, now you have to go to another site for another seven days. So it became nine days. But this was now luxury because there was a big tar car park and I could run around the car park. So luxury became running in a car park. But just this experience of being stuck somewhere and then stuck somewhere else. So we had a nine-day experience. And then another trip, we, we did it again uh, at this at the same bigger facility. Uh it is, it's a tricky thing to, to deal with. You'd be stuck in a hotel room and uh, it's, not a, it's not a good experience. And that was only for nine days, not four months.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, and we've, all, listen, everyone's been locked down. There's only a few people who've been lucky to live on a beach, for example, or on a small holding yeah. where they got space. There's, most of the world has been locked down in small apartments or high rise buildings and flats and stuff like that. So it's not, what athletes have been through is certainly not unique. Um, but they're also then asked to produce a really high level of performance, deliver results and entertain people. Um, and it's just for me, as I said, the, the real frustration for me because I've coached quite a few athletes and worked with a, a couple of uh, coaches as well to help them navigate this period. And there's just some such obvious stuff that we end up you know, talking about and sharing with them. And this, they like they go wow yeah that's really interesting and i'm going but it shouldn't be interesting you should know this a long time ago like just simple things like introverts versus extroverts are Mm. going to handle very differently and you need to cater for that and help people understand that and give the extroverts various ways to manage themselves you've got people who are um who playing and who doing well then buy bubbles is quite easy but the players who are not doing well on a low run of form or those players who are not being picked and carrying drinks. I mean, I was working with a player recently who's been a reserve and he just cannot face going into another buyer bubble where he's got to carry drinks and not get an opportunity to play. He is terrified of that, which is understandable, but is that mm-hmm. being catered for? I see there are a number of teams who continue to take people along who are just on the reserve bench. Um, someone who's injured. Um, You've got the, for me, the, the really important, interesting conversation is a senior player versus junior player. A senior player, and we've got examples like, for example, Ben Stokes in cricket who really was struggling and he had some personal issues, concerns in his, his family, which a lot of other people have as well. Um, but Ben's established enough in the Eng- England team to be able to say, I need to take a break. And when I'm ready to come back, I'll tell you, the door's always open. He knows that. But Mm. I've spoken to a few sort of middle ranking and younger players and ask them, you know, would you, if you're really struggling, would you feel comfortable to put your hand up and say, I'm really struggling, I need some time out? And the answer is a very quick, emphatic, no, no ways. I I could never do that because someone else will take my place, I'll get labeled as weak or can't mentally weak or can't handle it or doesn't tour well or can't handle bio bubbles. It's the end of my career if I put my hand up and be honest about what's happening to everyone. So... I just think sports bodies at the moment are are really not – they're falling short. They're really not doing our athletes justice by not commissioning somebody to go and speak to 100 athletes or get five psychologists Mm -hmm. to speak to 20 athletes each from different sports, collate the stories, pull it together. These are the six things. And quite frankly, Alex, you and I could figure them out right now. You don't have to be very clever to figure that out. And you could figure out ways – to to get around that but i'm just not seeing that information but what i'm i'm, I'm hearing from sports bodies is by bye mental well-being is really important and if you're struggling you must speak up like come on that's yeah. that's just not enough you know it's it's not doing yeah. enough and you know what that's doing that that's the sporting body ticking the box we've ticking the box yeah and it's
0: like it's almost as if the the landscape the horizon has changed significantly now you don't go on a tour and do X Y and Z and you enjoy the nightlife of Sydney or London you go to a hotel and it's a, a long time in one place so the landscape's changed and everyone appreciates that, but they haven't changed the criteria with which they, they serve the team. So, you know, why would you take a whole bunch of extra people who are going to just be sitting in a four-month buy bubble knowing that they're probably never going to play or the injured player, as you mentioned? So surely when the landscape changed, that's the opportunity to say, well, maybe our selection criteria or our team planning, our team management, our, our, you know, it, it is team management right, from the sense of looking after the team. That should, that should have changed too.
1: Yeah, quite correct.
0: Well, so. well, if you well, let's not belabor the point too much because you mentioned something there about the mental health and speaking up, Ben Stokes, etc. And uh, I want to segue this nicely into your podcast, which you've uh, you've just recently launched. Episode number one, I had an uh, enjoyable listen with Dale Stain, which is wonderful. I believe you got Gary Kirsten on number two. I'm going to have a listen that this afternoon. But you you talked to to Dale, an interesting point about mental well being once again. Uh, his 2015 world cup final where he he took a lot of strain in that over and uh it's you know six years later and well he was very open to talk to you about it but he he's not sure that he would have done anything different speaking up about it because it it is so difficult so firstly we're going to talk about the podcast but let's also zoom in particularly on on why you want the podcast and those kind of conversations about mental health and speaking up
1: yeah so yeah thanks very much for bringing that up um you know i've I've been thinking about the idea of of doing a podcast for a long time, but I know there's about 850,000 of them out there in the world, and it's not, dif- not dissimilar to... Two, two and a half million. Two and a half million. Okay, two. I'm behind time. <laughs> and it wasn't dissimilar to the story with my book. You know, For a long time, I'd, I'd actually been commissioned, I had a commission to write the book, but I didn't do it for seven or eight years because I didn't want to write it for the sake of writing it. I wanted to be very mm. clear what message I wanted to convey and who I wanted to convey it to and, and how. And when I was clear on that, it, it gave me the the impetus to spend four years writing a book because I'm not a, I enjoy writing and I can write, but it takes me five times longer than a proper writer to say what I really <laughs> wanted to say. And it was the same with the podcast. I've been thinking about it, but it was only more recently that it, my why really came to me with absolute clarity. And it actually came through coaching a lot of athletes during this um, lockdown period and the amount of time that just reminded me how many times over my mental coaching of athletes career which is over 20 years now where athletes have opened up to me in that moment of vulnerability and while we navigate i help them navigate their way through that one of the things that i often find myself thinking is like wow if only other people could actually hear this and just hear how normal and human you are what a relief it could be for them what an amazing learning learning it could be for if some if others could hear this but of course, while mm. athletes are playing, they can never share those real doubts, their real insecurities, vulnerabilities, the things that upset them, because it will get used against them without a doubt by the selectors or particularly their, their opposition. So
0: sure.
1: I want to do it to have to share with people these real human conversations with these superstars. They superstars are great talent, but they got the same hearts, the same emotions as you and I have. So that's why I'm doing it. I'm picking only retired athletes so okay. they can actually have these conversations. Uh, sometimes it's very cathartic for them to actually reveal, like Dalstein revealed that he burst out crying six years later when he watched, the first time he re- revisited that World Cup semi-final over that um, got hit for 11 runs and the team ended up losing. He, for the first time he looked at it and, and revisited six years later, he burst out crying. Mm. And he was able yeah. to share that. Um, so yeah, it's retired athletes and and with athletes who 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 are sufficiently aware to and generous to be able to actually go to those depths and talk about the story behind the story to to get real, to get vulnerable. Um, it's not about telling cool stories about great feats while they were. Um, athletes because we all know that we've all seen those stories or they've spoken about it in an interview or podcast somewhere i want to get underneath the skin of who is this person and what what really went on for you so that other people can understand you and get a piece of you that can really add value to their lives long story i haven't figured my elevator pitch that was a bit long
0: <laughs> yeah, obviously you've got a a, a broad network to, to draw on as well which is wonderful so I'm looking forward to, to following this journey but I want to ask you specifically for you now, we, we talked about Dale Steyn and uh, uh, very hesitantly used the word failure but I, what I want to ask is in your career over the last 10-20 years because People can look at you and say, well, look, Paddy's achieved so much. He's got a great book out and he's got this network and he's got uh, championships with the Indian team, brought the South African team to the top of the rankings, three formats and the Sydney team, etc." Tell me some of the failures that really stand out for you. Where, where were some low points in your career, maybe even personally, that, that was a proper failure that you can look back on now and say, look, it, it helped me in some way?
1: Yeah, so... I mean, there's two that come out and there's been plenty. And when I say two stand out, um, it's very easy. You know, our CVs and what we put out there is the success. Everyone has got a very impressive two-minute CV. Um, but mm-hmm. it's the stuff that's not in the CV for me that's actually really interesting. So I uh, I really enjoy that question. I mean, one of them was um, being picked as head coach of one of the inaugural teams in the Pakistan Super League. I arrived with a... A philosophy and approach to coaching that had really worked in India as you mentioned worked in South Africa it worked beautifully at the Sydney Thunder we went from you know down and out and won we lost 21 out of 22 games or the team had and we went on to win the championship a season later and I sort of at this stage I'd figured I, I figured this coaching thing out and I went and I brought this approach to the Pakistan team quite bullishly and with the Lahore Lahore, calendars And we came last in the first year and last in the second year. In fact, it was a five team tournament. Four teams made the playoffs and one team went home. And for two years in a row, that was us. Sure. And that really wasn't pretty. And, you know, that's, that was a hell of a blow. I mean, I really feel for the owners, particularly because they were wonderful, wonderful people and wonderfully supportive. And I, I felt I'd really let them down. Um, but in hindsight, you know, if I were to go back, I made quite a few mistakes um, or learning opportunities. But probably the biggest one was my approach is one of really harnessing the intelligence of the players and having players really be deeply involved in reviewing games afterwards and telling me their experience as opposed to me using data and video and telling them what I saw. And the same with pre-match strategy. I get the players to do the majority of the talking because I want the playing smarts to be on the field more than it is in the coaching mm-hmm. bench and in most professional sports teams in the world the playing intelligence actually sits on the coaching bench and coaches have to send instructions on with water boys um or you know now we even in rugby we have some highly intelligent water boys who run on with messages in rusty erasmus <laughs> or we have coaches in football and in, in mm. schools running up and down the sideline screaming instructions screaming instructions so mm. um and what i'd done So why, spark- why didn't it work Well, what I'd done is I I realized only afterwards was I'd asked these players to make way too big a leap too quickly from an instruction-based environment they were used to to one where they were making the majority of the decisions for themselves. And Mm. my very painful lesson was that big changes need to be made in smaller steps. I needed to pace them through it. And again, I didn't pay attention to my runway. I didn't pay attention mm-hmm. to how ready are these players to take responsibility for the decision-making. How much intelligence does sit in this team versus – and I didn't pay attention. And It was only after sort of halfway through the second season that I realized I'm asking too much. There does need to be some telling. And just because I am averse to telling people what to do and making decisions around strategy um, – it did not matter that I was averse to it. the environment. This particular playing group required that, and I was too stuck in my own philosophy as opposed to really paying attention to the environment and to what was required.
0: Yeah, that's not an easy thing to recognise either. Because if you, I mean, if you go back to flying instruction as well, the idea—let's fast forward. You're not on day one, but you—you you know, six months in, you're learning to fly hundred hours as a student. When I teach a student uh, at the end of the lesson, I will, or each individual exercise, will, I'll ask them for their feedback. And oftentimes, you know, most sort of average or above average students will give you the feedback and give you more detail than you would have shared with them, which is basically leaving the intelligence with the student, as you, as you mentioned with the, with the player. So how do you know when you, uh, I mean, it, it took your whole season to realize, didn't, uh, you said halfway through the next season, when do you realize and, and how do you change that?
1: You know, quite a lot has been written about this, Alex, is when you see the same thing over and over, you stop seeing things. Mm-hmm. So I was so used to my philosophy and the way that it worked and having players speaking. And it was all, outwardly it all worked. Players were talking in the post-match meetings, players were talking in okay. the pre-match meetings, the conversations were happening, the decisions were being made, um, but I didn't pay attention I just didn't pay attention enough to the fact that we didn't actually have a strong pool of players who had really good playing intelligence. Um, we just didn't have that, and I didn't pay attention to that level of detail. Um,
0: wow! So that that is quite a good lesson to learn. There, I mean, have you applied that now going forward since then?
1: Yeah. So what it did is, is I I, I went in knowing that I need to pay attention to the environment and not to my own thinking. But that mm-hmm. just showed me that even if I am paying attention to the environment, there are so many levels and so many depths. And then when you, when you get the next level and the next step, you think, okay, so I'm getting all the messages here. But there's always stuff that, that you're missing. There's, you know, and it's, it's just a hunger to keep being open. And one of the best things, certainly as a leader and as a coach, is to have somebody the fly on the wall. Somebody yeah. who can completely always be giving me feedback, testing me, questioning me. Um, and, and I think if I were to go back to some of, and I know you asked about failures, but some of my best successes was in partnerships. So Gary Kirsten mm-hmm. and myself, Gary was coaching and I, all I did was I spent 80% of my time not working with the players, with, watching Gary. His languaging, his question is in languaging. What do, you, what, what do you want to accomplish at this meeting? What do you want to say? Why do you want to say it? How do you want to say it? And then afterwards, giving him feedback, giving him feedback on his body language, on even, even when he smiled, when he's saying things. You know, I would constantly giving him that feedback. And then I, I had a relationship with Rahul Dravid where we gave each other, we held each other accountable and we had those, we trusted each other so much, we had those conversations. In, in Sydney Thunder, I had Mike Hussey uh, but in this in this team, in the Pakistan team, I was to a fair degree flying solo. I didn't have that person who was okay, questioning yeah. me the whole time. So that probably was also a mistake is going in there and not having that person who was going to really keep me honest. Um, and it wasn't well, an intentional good, yeah, thing. That-
0: that's good to, to hear and recognize that, you know, I think we all need a wingman, you know, whether, whether they are guiding you or supporting you, I think we all need a wingman. So that's a, another important lesson. Yeah,
1: and that wingman I, cannot be a yes man.
0: That yeah, ca- it cannot
1: sure. be your mate who's going to agree with you. And if it is your mate, it's got to have to be a mate who, who has the <laughs> hard conversations.
0: Sure. Okay. And in the next failure, I don't know if you want to uh, do Well, just the, other, that, uh, the
1: other one was, you you know, you mentioned it earlier. It's in my book. That was my biggest one was a Gary Kirsten. Okay. And that's, you know, and I, I could share that story. It'll, you know, take four, three, four minutes. but That was definitely <laughs> okay, the biggest yeah, know professional error I've ever earlier. made
0: in my life. And between it all, Paddy, uh, you try and get out to the ocean and do a bit of surfing and a bit of fishing and, uh, and living the good life there on the Atlantic seaboard as well. So that, that's good to hear. How often are you out in the surf? Uh, I
1: in a good week i'm in the water every day um you know i'm either open ocean swimming or surfing or stand up paddling if it's flat or supping or free diving um it's it's only if if the if the ocean if the weather really turns the ocean on its head then i then i won't be in otherwise a good week i'm in most days
0: Okay, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if there's any confidentiality, but uh, you you'd mentioned somewhere. I think I read in the book that you'd also been a mental coach to some professional surfers. Was that I, I remember correctly?
1: Uh, yes, I have worked with a couple of professional surfers.
0: Can you mention can you mention any names or disciplines?
1: Um, it's guys on the world tour, so okay. no, I prefer not. They they haven't spoken publicly, so no, and you know, and and fortunately, in okay. some of the other disciplines, you know, and, and bodyboarding and adaptive surfing, so. And, you know, b- between that group, you know, I've worked with two of them have been world champions. So, oh, wow, But
0: they nice. haven't spoken yeah, I'm just publicly, curious about so, the, yeah. is the approach with a, a, a surfer on the, the world tour and the, you know, international fast bowler or a, the batsman, you know, is it, is it the same kind of approach because you're dealing with the person and personal mastery?
1: At one level, at the real broad strokes, it's the same because I'm dealing with a human being with thoughts and emotions. But each mm-hmm. human being is different because our thoughts and emotions and our background is different. So even if I work with two fast bowlers, you know, I take Mornay Morkle and Dale Steyn. You've got you know two completely opposite individuals. And Gary Kirsten was opening the batting for South Africa with Herschel Gibbs. You can't have two polar. I was coaching both of them, and the conversations were fundamentally different. So it's, mm. it's the same, but it's different. We're dealing okay. with human right, beings. I'll, I'll, As humans, we all have thoughts and emotions and... We all have intuitive knowledge that we very often forget to listen to. And it's just really plugging people back into, you've got the answers, you have the intuitive or the universal wisdom or knowledge that sits within you. We just need to clear the obstacles that you're putting in your own way for you to access your potential, your knowledge, your wisdom.
0: Well, that's great. I think that's a good place to, to wrap it up. Paddy, it's been wonderful having this conversation. Very thought-provoking. Certainly my ego is, uh, is checked up a couple of notches, hoping that people are enjoying this conversation as much as I did. Uh, I encourage everyone to reach out. To just share a couple of places where people could reach out to you or follow your, your work with the new podcast and uh, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera.
1: Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Paddy Upton. Um, that's probably the best place. Or LinkedIn, I post most stuff on there. I think Twitter and Facebook, they've got funny algorithms that I post stuff and hardly anyone sees it.
0: (laughs) Okay. And looking forward to the the journey with the new podcast too. So uh, thanks once again for your time, Paddy. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for the invite. Love the conversation, Alex. Thank you for listening. I'm excited to have you on this journey with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and remember to subscribe to the show to catch weekly episodes so that you can build your high performance team.